Hello and welcome. You've tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We constantly have to say, Jesus, I surrender all. Poor Ezekiel had great aspirations for ordination when he was 30, but they were quashed when along with his people he was exiled. But God had big plans for Ezekiel and set about equipping him for his new role. This week we're in Ezekiel chapter 3 for a look at the watchman's responsibility. Let's join Dr. Corbett now. Got your Bibles, please turn to Ezekiel chapter 11. And we're going to be anchored in Ezekiel 11 for most of what we're looking at this morning. So here we are, we're in our third part of Ezekiel. And we're in chapter 11, so you can see we're not taking the meticulous uh, time that we're taking through Jeremiah with this. Because I want you to get the picture so that when... You're reading your Bible and when you're explaining your Bible to your children, you can have an understanding of where these things fit so that you understand that Ezekiel fits in the time of Jeremiah. Ezekiel would have been a younger man when Jeremiah himself wasn't that much older than him. And Ezekiel was taken in captivity to Babylon, modern day Iraq, and he was taken despite the fact that Jeremiah had been prophesying that, that people would be taken and that the other prophets, so-called prophets, had said Jeremiah was wrong, we find that Ezekiel was one of the first people to be taken, a, a batch of several thousand people. Um, I, I think somewhere around 10,000 people were taken from, from Judah uh, at that time and Ezekiel was a part of it he was 25 years of age when he was taken 25 years of age five years off being ordained as a priest and for someone who's a priest you have to be born into a priestly family it's not like uh, any concept you've got of a priest today you actually have to be born into a priestly family to qualify as a priest so he would have grown up knowing that he was when he turned 30 he was going to become a priest and as we've seen Ezekiel turned 30 and he's by a little canal. You, 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 you can't even find a map where this canal is indicated on the map. We only have a rough idea that it was about 260 kilometres or so north of the city of Babylon. And it's a little canal and Ezekiel is there and he's with the elders of Israel by this canal, which was a common thing. Jews began to develop this practice of, of meeting by water, whether it be a river, a stream, a creek or the sea, whenever they were in a foreign land. And so you'll read through the book of Acts that Paul arrived in a particular city, a Gentile city, and it was the Sabbath and he went down to the river. Now why did he go down to the river? Because every Jew knew that when you're in a foreign land, you go to the nearest body of water and you'll find other Jews there on the Sabbath and that's where together you can read the scriptures, have a time of prayer, a time of reflection, reciting some scriptures, in other words, have a, a, a worship service. So here's Ezekiel by a canal, not even a river, a canal, an irrigation canal. And as he's there, and you can imagine his mood, probably the, the day of his birthday, and here he is thinking... You know, if I was back in Jerusalem right now, I'd be having white linen garments put on me. I would be presented with a, a nice white turban. And these are a big deal for someone about to be made ordained a priest. And I would be there and I would be set apart in the public view that, that I'm now a priest. 
And he was missing that. And here he is perhaps lamenting this. And suddenly in front of him, bigger and brighter and clearer than any 3D screen you will ever see, four creatures appear to him. Huge, five, six metres tall. And they have what we today would call an energy field around them. He didn't have the language to describe it. He describes it as a wheel in a wheel. And there's this sense that he's just... Because he would never have seen a translucent sphere. He would never have seen one. And here's these creatures that he identifies as cherubs or cherubim because they're in the plural. And each of them have four faces. They look like they're warrior angels, and indeed they are. They're actually called guardian angels. You wonder how many guardian angels there are? There's four. There's four named, in, or the, these four are identified in Scripture. And each of them have four faces, so that at any point, all four aspects of the leadership of God, they reflect the leadership of God. Any, at any time, these four creatures are displaying what the complete picture of that leadership looks like. The man... It says they had the face of a man, the face of an eagle, the face of an ox, and the face of a lion. And of course, as we read through the New Testament, we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reflect each of those four aspects of the leadership that God exhibits toward people. Matthew is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark is the ox, the worker, the one who sacrifices and lays down his life. Luke is the face of a man, the man of compassion. Jesus is described as having compassion and feeling what we feel more often in the Gospel of Luke than any other Gospel. And the Gospel of John describes Christ as God in the flesh, the one who's like the eagle who soars in the heights of heaven. And here we have this complete picture of the leadership style of God. And there's Ezekiel seeing this picture. And we could go through the next 11 chapters and see how these creatures begin to, to minister to him in, in, in a bizarre way. It's almost, if you've seen some sci-fi movies, you've got this thing going on where they are communicating to him directly into his spirit and they're not, their mouths aren't opening. He's hearing them talk, but they're not talking. But he's hearing them. This is, this is why I would describe Ezekiel as as the most profound sci-fi prophet in the Bible. The book of Ezekiel is science fiction that was before there was ever science fiction. This is absolutely incredible. Now what, what I would love to do, and we don't have time to do, is to show you that in the verses leading up to chapter 11, Ezekiel is by this canal. And here he is, he is, he is looking at what's happening. And God is commissioning him to be a prophet. Commissioning him. On the day that he was due to be commissioned as a priest, he's being commissioned as a prophet to speak to the leaders of his nation, to speak to nations. And here he is, as he's being commissioned by God, the Spirit of God through these creatures say to him, come with us. And next thing... He's in Jerusalem. I don't know if you have a category where you filed weird, 
but I think you should file that one right in that whatever that category slot you've got is because that is pretty weird. Can you imagine that? There he is. He's by a canal in Babylon and then <laughs> he's in Jerusalem. That is actually the technical noise you would hear, I imagine, if you were... <laughs> and there he is. And he's taken into the temple. And the people can't see him, but he can see them. You see why I call this a science fiction book? And there he is. And God is, God is saying to him, look at what they're doing. And he's seeing the back rooms of the temple. And he's seeing the people, the leaders, the, his fellow priests that he would have been working with. He's seeing them bowing down to idols in the temple of God. And the Spirit of God is saying to Ezekiel, do you see why they are a rebellious house? Do you see why I've called you to be a prophet? These people who call themselves my people are grieving my heart. They come out of their back rooms into the front room. They present themselves as working for me, serving me, my priests, my people. But they are in their hearts utterly corrupt. Ezekiel, you need to see this. And next thing, we're chapter 11 and we're sort of verse 5-ish or so. You hear, and he's back in Babylon by the Kibar Canal. And there he is. So you can see verse 1, the Spirit of God lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord. So there we go. That's that. And here he is back at the canal. And we're going to pick it up in a moment. And we're going to see that Ezekiel now looks at his looks at his fellow countrymen who are going who were saying around this time, how could God do this to us? How could God let us down like this? Why would God betray us? Why would God do this to us? And Ezekiel's now not looking at the problem that they could see and wondering anymore because now God has shown him why this has happened. God has given him a glimpse. Not just into the exterior, but into the interior. And Ezekiel is not left wondering why this has happened. And with all their facade of being holy and religious and righteous, Ezekiel is seeing right into their hearts that these people fundamentally are rebels against God. It's not that they are indifferent to God, it's that they actually despise God and yet pretend that they don't. There's a word for that, and we'll introduce that word in a moment. So here we have Ezekiel about to say something by the Spirit of God to these people. And this message, we're going to pick it up in, in a moment from around about verse 19, is based on that, that verse where it says this, the, the, there's a need for a heart transplant. And this is the title of this message, there is a need for a heart transplant. And Ezekiel, we're going to see in a moment, is, is essentially going to say, God is going to establish a new covenant. And in that new covenant, he's going to give people a new heart. And this is the only thing that can save a soul. The need for a heart transplant. So we've seen that Ezekiel was exposed to, and I mentioned I was going to use a key word, and this key word is wickedness. You see, wickedness, sometimes people use the word wickedness and the word evil as if they meant the same thing. They don't quite mean the same thing. In fact, in Scripture, uh, evil is variously described as 
missing the mark or crossing a line you shouldn't cross. That's evil. Wickedness is, it, it, it comes from an archery term. In an archery, they would, they would have an arrow and, and if the arrow fired straight for most of the way and then phew, did that, they'd go, that's a wicked arrow. And it meant that there must have been just a slight kink in the, in the arrow that eventually when it slows down, the bow straightens out and, and that, that kink is identified. So it's straight, 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 straight. In other words, it looks right, it looks right, it looks right, it looks right, off it goes. And wickedness is this idea that you are pretending to be good. You are pretending to be righteous and most of what you do and present looks that way, but there's just this little bit that... That's wickedness. And wickedness means you know what's right and you choose to do what's wrong anyway. That's wickedness. And most of you in this room right now are not wicked people. In fact, I would probably hazard a guess all of you. Because if you were really wicked, you probably wouldn't want to be in God's house, exposed to God's word, where God's spirit can do something quite unique in this environment. Ezekiel was gutted to discover that his countrymen, the leaders of his people, were wicked. He was gutted to discover it. To discover it. And when you think about what Israel had had, they had had so many advantages. I mean, what does God have to do? I mean, if you were, if you were to pray a prayer, God, help me to be a strong Christian. What would, how would God answer that prayer? Can you think of all the advantages you, you know, God could afford you in order for that prayer to be answered? You, 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 could, you could probably list a few. Well, surround me with, and what are those things? Well, I was thinking about this with Israel. They had a godly heritage. I mean, if you, wanted, if you really wanted to have the best God being the best Christian you could be, you'd probably need good Christian parents. If you're a child here today and you've got good Christian, or Christian parents, you, you should be thanking God. You really should because Christian parents is, is one of the surest ways for somebody to really be established in their walk with God. If you haven't got Christian parents, it doesn't mean you can't be a strong Christian. It does mean you, you're starting with a bit of a handicap though. You actually, you actually have to do a bit of catch up. That's okay, you can do the catch up. But if you start with Christian parents, I think you've got a head start. They, Israel definitely had a godly heritage. They also had a supernatural encounter with God. Israel could identify the miracles they had seen and experienced. Can you imagine your great-grandparents telling you, I was there. I was there the day we came out of Egypt. I was there when we stood at the Red Sea. I was there when Moses lifted up his staff and that Red Sea parted. I walked through on dry ground. I was there. I saw it. Can you imagine growing up hearing your great-grandparents telling you that story? You go, wow, wow, God is awesome, he's powerful. And, and Israel had encounter after encounter after encounter, miraculous encounter. And you don't need to go all the way back to the Exodus for these miraculous encounters. If you were around the time of Hezekiah, and many of these people could probably trace ancestry back to the time of Hezekiah, you would know that the Assyrians, just a hundred years earlier, had surrounded Jerusalem. And if you've seen the movie 300, you, you know the army that we're talking about. These guys were fierce. And here's this army, hundreds of thousands of men, ready to demolish Jerusalem. 
Ezekiel goes into the temple, cries out to God for deliverance, and God answers his prayer. And, and that night, 186,000 Assyrians co- committed murder on each other. And they fled. Hmm, that's a bit of a miracle. So you don't have to go too far back to find a miracle that these people were aware of. What else would help you to be a strong Christian? They had constant reminders of God's favour toward them. They're in a promised land. God had given them a land. In fact, we're going to see that this idea that they need all these things in order to be faithful to God are identified in the the first few verses of chapter 11. And today, much of the fighting that's going on over in Gaza is actually about that point. So they had constant reminders. They had a temple constantly reminding them that God had done something in their midst. They had a national program of biblical instruction. I mean, the priests were essentially state-funded employees. This was a national program way beyond anything any modern nation has ever had. They had a priesthood dedicated to serving God. I mean, born a priest, and it wasn't like they were looking for recruits, but it was, it was built into the system that there'd always be priests ready to teach the people. All of these things, uh, including their national holidays, their national holidays were reminders of what God had done the time of coming out of Egypt, the Passover, all of those things were a reminder of what God had done. Yet with all of these advantages, they forsook God. They forsook his ways, they forsook his word, and they forsook his will. And Ezekiel is now acutely aware of it. This is where we pick it up in verse 12. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. This is the assessment they were getting. Jesus picks up on something that God actually goes on to say in this passage to Ezekiel. In Matthew 15, verse 8, he says, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What does it take to make a bad person good? The right kind of punishment? right kind of rules all of those things we've just mentioned given the right parents given the right teaching the right education given the right moral code israel had all that and they failed big time failed what's the solution what's the solution it's certainly not rules rules don't necessarily make a bad person good do they Well, the solution we see in this passage in Ezekiel is that they needed a new heart, a new heart. This is what it says in verse 19. Come down, if you've got in your Bible, this is a great one to highlight. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh. So God is saying the solution is a heart transplant. That's the solution. goes on, verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And here's what God is saying. It's not additional rules that's going to change your heart. It's your new heart that's going to give you a desire 
to keep the rules. God's rules are not cramping our style. God's rules are designed for our protection and our best. But if you haven't got a heart, if you haven't got a heart that sees that, gets that, that's a really hard deal for you to accept. Really hard. Some people get their predicament in a really bad place. And they think, if I can just get smarter, I'll get out of my predicament. If I can just get wealthier, I'll get out of my predicament. If I can just get the right husband or wife, or if I didn't have such lousy kids, I wouldn't be in this predicament. If I can just find the right church, I could change my predicament. And God says, I think, the same thing to us. It's not more rules, stuff, money. (laughs) It's a new heart. It's a new heart. A new heart. One of the most amazing testimonies you'll ever get to hear is, is of someone who was born to a Christian home, went to church all their life, got married in a church, took their kids to church, in church, serving in church, and then one day the lights go on and they recognise they didn't know Christ and they recognised the true condition of their heart and they recognised the immense, infinite beauty of Christ and they are irresistibly drawn to surrender to him. I've heard testimonies like that They're rare, but they are the sweetest testimonies. I know you can have testimonies of people who are criminals and they do all kinds of violent things and then they find Christ and they're good too. But the one where someone discovers Christ thinking that they already had, they are sweet. They are sweet. And it highlights the difference between someone who goes to church and doesn't get it and someone who goes to church because they get it. There is a difference. The solution to your predicament is not new rules. The solution to your predicament is a new heart. This is how the New Testament puts it. And with each of these things, I want to show you how this illustrates the New Testament. We're in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a great memory verse. If you haven't got a memory verse at the moment, this is a great one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what creation? A new creation. Think about that. A new creation. You begin to think differently. You begin to feel differently. Your priorities become different. What you do with your time, your talent, your treasure becomes different. It says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is great news. Sometimes people come to Jesus because they want the genie Jesus to come and solve all their problems rather than recognizing Jesus isn't your genie. Jesus is meant to be your Lord. And this guy clearly demonstrates that Jesus Christ is his Lord. And why? Because Christ has changed his heart. He's a new creation, a new person. The old has passed away. And here's a question I've got for you. Have you received a new heart from God? Can you, can you identify a moment where, where you say, My life changed at that point. My life has changed. 
Can you identify that? And here's the next question, because the, the difficulty is you can think it's an event, it happens once, and bang, that's it. But what the New Testament describes is that God gives us a new heart, and it's a process of that heart becoming established in us. Like any transplant, it takes time. And here's the language of the New Testament. Are you putting off your old heart to live out your new heart? And this is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, and I finish with this thought. And this is what Ezekiel said was the solution to Israel's predicament. The only solution was for them to have a heart transplant. Their heart was so desperately wicked, nothing else could be done. Ephesians 4.22, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The heart we're going to see that God gives is one that can only come because he's given it to you. You don't work for it. You don't fake it till you make it. He gives it to you. And as he gives it to you, you have to put off the stuff of your old heart. This is why we as followers of Christ, and I've been following Christ now like many of you have, into my fourth, fifth decade now. We constantly, we constantly have to say, Jesus, I surrender all. I give you all my heart. I give you all my life. Have your way in me. Lord, if there be anything in my life that grieves you or doesn't bring you pleasure, Remove it and help me to live out of the new heart you've given me. Ezekiel saw this, you, the church, full of people with new hearts some two and a half thousand years ago. Isn't that amazing? He saw the day when God would do this in people. When, when God would give people a heart to know him, a heart to love him, a heart to follow him. That kind of heart. And here's my closing question. Is your heart open for God to have his way? Is your heart open to what he wants to do so that you can increasingly receive his heart? Let's pray. Father, what Ezekiel saw was the need that we all have to receive a new heart from you. And I pray, oh God, that we would. I pray, oh God, that you would work in our hearts and our minds to hear from you and receive from you. I pray, O oh God, that you would speak to those people who feel far from you. The Lord, no matter if they've run what they feel is a million miles from you, they are only one step away, one step around, and you're right there. Amen. Amen. When God has a job for you to do, he equips you for it just as we're seeing in the life and experience of Ezekiel. More from Dr. Corbett next week when Ezekiel had a need for a heart transplant. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters, including tonight's program, The Watchman's Responsibility, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. 
Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.